from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is January 1st, 2015. It's New Year's, baby! Yay! Uh, okay. Right, we got that. Okay. I was looking for a sound clip. Anyway, Happy New Year, everybody. And, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I now do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. Trying to get the sound levels right. I'm always worried that my voice is too loud, the music's too quiet. Um, yeah, I sometimes move the mic away from my mouth or whatever. Normally, I would just record it and then I could adjust my volume later. But obviously, when I've got sound effects and music, um, it's it's all one package, right? I can't adjust the sound separately. So whatever. Maybe someday I'll get a, a more advanced system where I can you know play the music louder or quieter after I record. But whatever. I mention this because I've been trying some different podcasts, and what I've noticed is whenever it's just one person talking, generally speaking, those podcasts are terrible. Um, I just can't deal with it. Jen Kirkman's podcast is good, and that's just her talking, because um, she keeps it moving. Like She doesn't dwell on things and let these boring tangents run off. Uh, Greg Proops does a one-man podcast called The Smartest Man in the World. And generally speaking, it's funny, but I had to unsubscribe because I just could not take his boring tangents. Like half of the time when he goes off on tangents, they end up being boring. And the other half are good and funny and interesting. I mean, he's been all over the world. He's met, He's worked with a lot of famous people. And so he's got some interesting stories to tell, but... He's also got a lot of boring stuff to talk about, and I'm not talking about the, what he calls the boring preachy bit, because that's actually my favorite part of the show when he goes off on politics and feminism and stuff like that, but the other thing he does is he berates the audience. He's like, come on, that joke is hilarious, and you're welcome to not laugh, and you know, he's got this sort of small little bag of jokes that he'll throw out there if no one's laughing, and, and you just hear them over and over again, and you just get tired, like, okay, he's berating an audience in Denmark now, and then he's berating an audience in New York or whatever. And it just gets dull. So I'm trying real hard not to be that kind of podcast where it's just like, blah, 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 I'm saying the same things or I'm being dull. But yeah, um, so what's going on? It's New Year's. Yay. It's almost time for school to start up again. Boo. I've had a good break, but I want a longer break because it's never long enough, obviously. And uh, yeah, we went down to Florida for Christmas time and that was awesome. I got to see my mom and my brother and my uh, sister-in-law, I guess she is. I don't know. Janine, what up? And uh, shout outs to all of the fam. And I got to see Avit, which was awesome. And I got to see Megan and Kick and Lan and Laura. And we even got to see Mary and uh, Darren and Katie. So hooray for everybody that we saw and hung out with and uh, it was great to see everybody and spend time with my loved ones and yeah so that was fun we had to fly and I really don't like flying but I must say that the view outside the window when you're up above the clouds that is gorgeous I, I'll be honest I, I'm, I'm sort of 
awestruck when I'm up in a plane and I look down, I'm like, wow, that's the clouds from above. And I, I still get a little, uh, taken aback when that happens. Cause I think it's really bizarre. And, you know, being in a plane is nerve wracking for me. Cause I always think, you know, like wind could just come along and just flog us out of the air. It, it, it could happen. And, um, you know, I know we've got a lot of technology and, you know, experience and stuff, making sure that plane travel is safe, but I'm always freaked out when I have to do it. Anyway, um, I don't know if I talked about this before, but the UW Writers Institute is coming up. And if I already talked about it, I'm sorry. It's happening March 27th through the 29th of this year. And I've been invited to present at the UW-Madison Writers Institute, which is a big honor, and I'm very excited about it. I'm going to be doing two workshops. One is about um, finding a sense of place and writing about a sense of place. And the other uh, presentation I'm very excited about is um, it's called Between Pessimism and Pollyanna. And it's about finding a balance of realism that is not unrealistically you know, ebullient and optimistic, but also not unrealistically pessimistic, because I believe that uh, a lot of stories today, especially things like Game of Thrones, uh, they, they pretend to be realis- realist, but they're actually pessimistic, and I don't think that's okay, and I'm trying to rail against that and encourage people not to fall into that trap. So, whenever I start talking about that, people immediately accuse me of being Pollyanna or wanting Pollyanna stories, and so that's not the case, and I want to try to convince people, look, I'm shooting for, you know, a balance here, not one or the other, because I think these days we're really far over on the, oh, doom and gloom side. Um, what else are we talking about today? Uh, yeah, Jeb Bush is running for president, probably. Oh, my God. Now, for the record, I want to make it clear that KRS-One totally called this uh, back in the day with a song that he did called I'm on the Mic. So let me play a little bit of this and you can hear what he said. Uh, it's just a good beat. When you least expect it. Bounce to this. We back up in this piece like Easter bread. Underground, you gotta find me like an Easter egg. No need to beg. I hit the club hard on the red. Why you check for CDs? I'm selling books instead. I travel a country by car, by foot and leg. What's worse than being behind is being ahead. Prophetic visions of President Jeb. Yeah, prophetic visions of President Jeb. You called it KRS-One, and that that album was like ten years ago. So it's pretty. Uh, yeah, if he's if Jeb Bush becomes president, I'm gonna move to Canada. I hate when people do that. Like if so and so wins, I'm moving to Canada. First of all, no, you're not. Second of all, that's the pathetic thing to do. If you're really if you love this country, you're gonna stay and fight. And third of all. What? Because someone you don't like becomes president, so you're like, I'm leaving. And that's just stupid. Uh, and, I mean, come on. Who, look at who's being discussed for the GOP. Jeb Bush. Blah, Marco Rubio. Ted Cruz. Really? Rand Paul. Ugh, and <laughs> Scott Walker. Oh, my God. I mean, Rand Paul is the person I like. I hate the least in that bunch. And the fact that I, you know, that says a lot. Because I'm not a big Rand Paul fan, people. And as for the Democrats... There's Hillary and Hillary. That's pretty much it, really. That's the only person anyone's talking about right now. I want Bernie Sanders to run, and I want Elizabeth Warren to run. Wouldn't a Warren-Sanders ticket be awesome? I would love to see them. And, you know, th- there's an important role for them to play to push the discussion over to the left more. And 
I know that it's also raising a lot of money for no reason and this and that. And it's not, you know, we get all caught up in the presidential contest and real change happens at the grassroots. So I'm trying to train myself not to get too fixated on the presidential contest and the national elections because by and large, you know, the Democrats and Republicans aren't too different, but there is a difference. So I don't know, whatever. The action for this episode is, uh, I'm going to send you all to the YWCA Action Center. Uh, YWCA is a great organization. My friend Colleen works there. What, what? And um, yeah, they've got this cool website that has all these actions you can take uh, online and elsewhere. Um, You can send hard copies if you want. You can fill it out online. And they've got a bunch of different actions. So for instance, they got one right now. Tell Congress and racial profiling it destroys fairness and justice. And it's clear, given the shortcomings we've seen in local law enforcement in New York and Ferguson and lots of other places. It's not just those two places. People don't believe the hype. Um, we need national action in the same way we needed national action to end segregation in the United States during the civil rights era. So too do we need national action to stop police from murdering unarmed black men. So go over to the YWCA Action Center and send a a message to Congress uh, in terms of ending racial profiling. You can also support immigration reform, prevent domestic violence, homicide by closing key loopholes, etc., etc. Do some action, take some action, do some stuff, and take some stuff in terms of action. Let's talk about some current events. Couldn't finish eating the cookie in time. I'm eating a cookie because I'm recording this before lunch and I was having a little cookie to tie me over. Thank you, little cookie. Mmm. All right. New York City pushes for Garner settlement. Lawyers protest. Uh, this is from the, what is it, the Austin Chronicle? Uh, Cron. Oh, really? The article is no longer around? Oh, come on. Cron.com. Um, well, anyway, there were uh, some. So the city said Wednesday that it is trying to negotiate a settlement with Eric Garner's family as scores of defense attorneys protested the criminal justice system's handling of police killings uh, of unarmed black men by participating in marches and die-ins. The, the second part is really the part I'm most interested in. In Brooklyn on Wednesday, public defenders and other lawyers marched at courthouses and a prosecutor's office and staged a die-in outside a city jail. They later stood in front of a criminal court chanting, Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe, which, as you probably know, is a reference to Eric Garner's last words. In Philadelphia, a group of lawyers participated in a die-in at the Criminal Justice Center. Quote, We wanted to lend our voices to protest what's been going on for decades, not only in this courthouse, but in courthouses across the five boroughs and across the United States in terms of a really unequal criminal justice system, said Deborah Wright, president of the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys. Said another attorney, Nora Carroll, quote, We know that when a prosecutor wants an indictment, they can get one. End quote. So again, we saw, you know, that the prosecutor who was supposed to be getting an indictment for the police officer uh, who um, killed Eric Garner. Um, As in the case in Ferguson, you know, these prosecutors work so closely with the police that they're hesitant, they're loath, if you will, to uh, pursue real justice against police officers who murder unarmed black men. And, um, you know, in the case of Eric Garner, you know, it makes me think about The Wire and the, you know, the police chief Daniels, spoilers, I don't remember what season this is, but if you haven't watched all of The Wire, this might be a spoiler. So warning, warning, spoilers for The Wire. 
I don't think I have the warning thing. Um, but anyway, the sound of the warning. Anyway, uh, yeah. So in the wire, you know, the, one of the police officers, one of the sort of, you know, bosses of the police department actually, you know, has a relationship with one of the um, attorneys that works uh, for the city. Or I don't remember exactly what her job is. But, you know, that that goes to show the closeness. And I know that's a fictional TV show, but, but there is a very severe closeness between um, you know, the legal profession and the police. And I dare say that, um, that means that there's sometimes a conflict of interest when it's supposed to be, uh, the, the, the public attorneys or the, you know, prosecuting attorneys, the uh, DA, I don't even know any of these terms, but, um, you know, there, there's a closeness between city law enforcement and city legal officials. So whatever. Um, Speaking of race, Jezebel had a really interesting article. I encourage you to read this whole thing. I've quoted like half of the article here. And uh, it's such a superb piece, not only because it interrogates the inadequacy of having good intentions, but because it acknowledges the universality of the phenomenon of thinking about intentions as uh, service some, serving some purpose beyond impact. Uh, the title is called, I Don't Know What to Do with Good White People. And like I said, it's on it's in Jezebel.com, uh, which is a good website, deals with a lot of gender issues, but they also deal with other things. And uh, so it's by this person named Britt Bennett, and it's a really good piece. You should really read the whole thing, but... Here's here's some of it. Uh, I've been surrounded by good white people my whole life. Good white people living in my neighborhood who returned our dog when he got loose. Good white teachers in elementary school who pushed books into my hands. Good white professors at Stanford, a Bay Area bastion of good whiteness, who recommended me MFA programs where I met good white writers. Over the past two weeks, I've seen good white people congratulate themselves for deleting racist friends or debating family members or performing small acts of kindness to black people. Sometimes I think I would prefer racist trolling to this grade of self-aggrandizement. A racist troll is easy to dismiss. He does not think decency is enough. Sometimes I think white people expect to be rewarded for their decency. We are not like those other white people. See how enlightened and aware we are? See how we are good? Over the past two weeks, I have fluctuated between anger and grief. I feel surrounded by black death. What a privilege to concern yourself with seeming good while the rest of us want to seem worthy of life. I often hear good white people ask why people of color must make everything about race, as if we enjoy considering racism as a motivation. I wish I never had to cycle through these small interactions and wonder, am I overthinking? Am I just being paranoid? It's exhausting. Quote, it was a lot simpler in the rural south, my mother tells me. White people let you know right away where you stood. End quote. The problem is that you can never know someone else's intentions. And sometimes I feel like I live in a world where I'm forced to parse through the intentions of people who have no interest in knowing mine. A grand jury believed that Darren Wilson was a good officer doing his job. The same grand jury believed that an 18-year-old kid in a monstrous rage charged into a hailstorm of bullets toward a cop's gun. Later in the article, we all want to believe in progress, in history that marches forward in a neat line, in, uh, in transcended differences and growing acceptance in how good the good white people have become. So we expect racism to appear cartoonishly evil like a Disney villain, as if a racist cop is one who wakes up in the morning twirling his mustache and rubbing his hands together as he plots how to destroy black lives. I don't think Darren Wilson or Daniel Pantaleo, the guy who killed Eric Garner, set out to kill black men. I'm sure the cops who arrested my father meant well, and I skipped the part, but you should read it about her father getting arrested. But what good are your good intentions if they kill us? 
When my friends and I discuss people we dislike, we often end our conversations with, but he means well. We always land here because we want to affirm ourselves as fair, non-judgmental people who examine a person not only by what he does, but also by what he intends to. After all, aren't all of us standing in the gap between who we are and who we try to be? Isn't it human to allow those we dislike, even those who harm us, a residence in this space as well? End quote. And like, there's so much in the article that you've got to read the whole thing. It's really, really good. And I would just say that, you know, of course, we all want to be given that awareness that, yeah, you may be trying your best. But here's the point. Look, as a teacher, I can speak about me. If I try real hard to educate a kid and he resists hard, he calls me names and all sorts of things, and I pick up a chair and clock him in the head and give him a concussion... I may be trying in that moment, but I still really screwed up and I should still be punished. It doesn't matter if I had good intentions or whatever. So, you know, the, the point about good intentions not being enough is, uh, is a very important one. So thank you for making that point, uh, uh, Britt Bennett. And she said she's writing a book, so I'm really looking forward to reading her book. In Afghanistan, meanwhile, deadly suicide bombing interrupts play condemning suicide bombings. And this just broke my heart, the irony of it, right? A suicide bomber detonated explosives Thursday inside a French-funded school in Kabul during a play that condemned suicide attacks, leading to deaths and numerous injuries, the French foreign minister said. The attack happened at Istiklal High School, a school that includes a French cultural center in the Afghan capital. The Taliban, the Islamist extremist group fighting against Afghanistan's ruling government and firmly opposed by various Western powers, claimed responsibility, according to spokesman Zabihullah Mujahid. Around 5 p.m., the theater at the school in central Kabul was packed for a performance of a play entitled Heartbeats, Silence After the Explosion. It abruptly ended about 30 minutes later with a very loud bang, a bright light, smoke and dust, according to witnesses Zahir Sangar. And it just breaks my heart that, you know, these kids, the, these students are trying to raise people's awareness of the horror and the terror of suicide bombing. And then here comes a suicide bombing scumbag uh, blowing people up. And as I'm sure you all know, there was the horrible attack in a Pakistan school where a bunch of children were killed. And they, according to some reports, the kids had to watch while their teacher was burned alive. And it just, oh God, it always breaks my heart whenever any, you know, suicide bombing or, or you know, killing happens. Um... And as you know, I've said, I've said before, I want this stuff to stop. And um, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say. You know, I, I except I will say for the record that you know, drone attacks, killing people with flying robots, that does not stop terrorism, right? If it did, first of all, if it did, it, terrorism wouldn't happen anymore. But it continues to happen. And um, you know, terrorism needs to be handled like a police issue. It's not. We're not going to win it in a war-type approach because it's hearts and minds. I don't want to get off on a whole thing. Anyway, moving on. Uh, thanks to K-Dro. K-Drozy, K what's up? Whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, New York moves to ban fracking. Yes! New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration will move to prohibit fracking in the state, citing unresolved health issues and dubious economic benefits of the widely used but controversial gas drilling technique. New York has had a temporary ban on the practice since an environmental review began in 2008. State Environmental Commissioner Joe Martins said Wednesday that he was re recommending a total ban, and Cuomo said he would defer to Martins and Acting Health Commissioner Howard Zucker in making the decision. Zucker and Martins summarized the findings of their environmental and health 
Health Reviews, they concluded that shale gas development using high-volume hydraulic fracturing or fracking carried unacceptable risks that haven't been sufficiently studied. Martin said that the Department of Environmental Conservation will put out a final environmental impact statement early next year. I guess that's this year now. And after that, he'll issue an order prohibiting fracking. Sweet! It's just not worth it, people. Um, I hate fracking. It should not happen. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk about economics. The tech worker shortage doesn't really exist. This is from Business Week. Ah, a little drink of water there. There is, quote, there is no evidence of any way, shape, or form that there's a shortage in the conventional sense, says Hal Zaltzman, uh, professor of planning and public policy at Rutgers University. They, they may not be able to find them at the price they want, but I'm not sure that qualifies as a shortage any more than my not being able to find a half-price TV. So the whole thing is that, you know, people say, like, oh, there's all these jobs and Americans aren't willing to do them. And now, you know, don't get me wrong, like, uh, that, that that's here's the okay hang on a second because there's a double-edged sword here okay the tech shortage doesn't exist and i mean to be fair here's the thing some people said this about agricultural workers right because there's this notion that um immigrant you know immigrant, immigrant workers especially illegal immigrants tend to do the hard horrible jobs that americans don't want to do and uh, you know that may be true uh but i dare say if you paid to give a crazy, ludicrous example, if you paid $30 an hour, you'd probably get at least some Americans willing to do some of that farm work, right? It's it's the fact that the wages are so low. Now, maybe not all of it. And, and I mean, my larger global perspective says this is a false dichotomy. This is, I mean, you know, those illegal immigrants, they need jobs, right? They need to feed their families. And American workers need decent jobs at decent wages. So, uh, you know, but but when it comes to the tech worker shortage, there's definitely no question that, um, yeah. For a real-life example of an actual worker shortage, Saltzman points to the case of petroleum engineers, where the supply of workers has failed to keep up with the growth in oil exploration. The result, says Saltzman, was just what economists would have predicted. Employers started offering more money, more people started becoming petroleum engineers, and the shortage was solved. In contrast, Saltzman concluded in a paper released last year by the Liberal Economic Policy Institute, Real IT wages are about the same as they were in 1999. Like most working conditions, the wages have been stagnant for 30 years. Further, he and his co-authors found only half of a STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, college graduates each year, only half of the STEM college graduates each year get hired into STEM jobs. Quote, we don't dispute the fact that uh, at all that Facebook and Microsoft would like to have more cheaper workers, says Saltzman's co-author Daniel Kuhn, now a research associate at the Urban Institute, but that didn't constitute a shortage. So whenever you hear people talk about, oh, there's not enough people to fill these jobs, you, you got to start by saying, well, which jobs are they talking about? And, and is that bupkis? Because it's usually bupkis. But what's not bupkis is Michael Lewis. He's awesome. This is the guy who wrote uh, Flash Boys or whatever it is, the, the latest book about high-frequency trading, which I still haven't read. And I just started Infinite Jest. So here, Infinite Jest. You hear that? That's the 1,000-page book that I'm reading right now. Why not? I got lots of free time. Um, I do have free time, but it's busy making a new village in Minecraft. That's right. I started on a new server, the Reddit PVE server. This isn't about economics. Shut up annoying voice person. I want you to talk about economics some more. I'm not talking about economics right now. Shut up. 
Um, Minecraft, yeah. So the PvE... I can hear this on the Veteran Gamers. I don't need to hear it from you now. Hey, I'm going to talk about it, all right? You were just complaining about tangents. Shut up. So, um, yeah, I was making stuff in the New Beginnings Minecraft server, and it was awesome. I got these two new uh, roller coasters going, and they're sweet, but I felt like, you know, I kind of wanted more people around, because then I could get them more people to ride the roller coasters. And then I remembered, oh, Reddit has an official, not, it's not really official, but it's basically official. Um, Anyway, they got a PvE server, and uh, yeah, there's lots of people in it, but it's hard. It's on hard difficulty, and I kept starving to death and getting killed by zombies and, and creepers and skeletons and blah. So I finally got settled. Anyway, whatever. Michael Lewis. Uh, he wrote a piece for Bloomberg News called uh, Eight Things I Wish for Wall Street, and it's awesome. you got to read this thing. Uh, yeah. Number one, the financial sector rids itself of anyone with even the faintest reason to believe that he or she is unusually clever. Because <laughs> it's all these people in the you know, high-tech world is, oh, I'm so clever. And, and they come up with these arcane financial instruments because they're clever. And uh, they ended up wrecking the economy in 2008. Number two, no person under the age of 35 will be allowed to work on Wall Street. Number three, women will henceforth make all Wall Street trading decisions. And I'm jumping ahead. Number five, no firm shall be immortal, or rather, no firm shall be too big to fail. Number six, strive to make the rest of society feel as if finance is something everyone can and should understand by making it easily understandable. Here's where he kind of brings it back together here. The new crowd running Wall Street, a pleasant and sociable mix of old ladies and academically challenged middle-aged men, will probably resist any addition of complexity to the financial system. Ding, 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 ding. There it is. Of what use is a predatory algorithm to a sane and happy 85-year-old woman? Still, it's better here to err on the side of caution. To put an end to the use of complexity to obfuscate, buffalo, and deceive the public, any new financial idea, a new security, a new stock market order type, a new market regulation, must be explained on a single sheet of paper in clear language, understandable by whoever at the time happens to be the most prominent Kardashian. I don't imagine that this will put an end to financial innovation, but it will help. And then number eight, channel America's testosterone into financial regulation. As a final safeguard, the Securities and Exchange Commission will need to be dismantled and rebuilt as a for-profit enterprise, so that it might be at once feared and loathed, the regulator will be named Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs will be paid by the government a finder's fee for every little old lady it discovers in an act of a financial crime. I just love this idea of flipping it around and being like, you'll get paid to enforce the law instead of being paid to break it. Because right now, Wall Street people on Wall Street are being paid to break the law or find very slimy ways around it, through the loopholes and bending the law, and we need to stop that. And regulators can't keep up with it because government doesn't have enough money, so we're told. Congress keeps draining all the money out of regulation, and it's, we're cutting red tape. No, you're making it easier for your Wall Street fat cat buddy to bend and grease and break the law. Read Predator Nation by Charles Ferguson if you don't believe me. Bah! So anyway. Um, oh, and by the way, this is very reminiscent of something Dave Barry wrote several, many years ago. Uh, he said, he was running for president, and he said, I'm going to replace all of the you know, uh, dom- my domestic policy, I'll eliminate the federal government and I'll replace it with the department of a woman named Susan. And it'll be a middle-aged woman named Susan who has a job and a mortgage. And uh, people will go to her and they'll say, uh, he was using the uh, particle accelerators as an example. He said, people will go to her and say, we want to take, we want to make this huge tunnel and we'll take little tiny particles that no one can see 
and smash them into even tinier particles that no one can see until they create even tinier particles that no one can see. We need $100 million. And Susan will say, no. <laughs> and I just, you know, the whole notion of like common sense. Now, to be fair, the notion of common sense coming back, that, that sometimes is a fool's errand, and it, it's often a, a, a smokescreen for whatever perspective the person has. Like, you know, people often say, well, common sense says we don't need billions of dollars going to the federal government, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, meanwhile, it's clear that we do need a federal government for protecting the water and, and you know, making sure schools are doing the right thing and all that stuff. So, um, anyway. Okay, CNN money. Three things Wall Street doesn't want you to know. Now, again, I love reading the business press. I have Google alerts about Wall Street and business news and investors and stuff. And I read Business Week all the time because it's important for us to know what people on Wall Street are thinking and what, you know, the phrase is know thy enemy. And I don't, yeah, I do think of Wall Street as my enemy. I mean, I don't want to. I think I like to think that Wall Street can do good things for the American society, but after what happened in 2008, I think you're foolish if you're an ordinary person and you don't see Wall Street as your enemy because Wall Street certainly does see you as the enemy. Um, in fact, that's the title. Wall Street is your enemy because, you know, they see, for instance, take high-frequency trading. Okay, if you are, if you have a 401k, you have a pension plan, or, or you... You invest with, you know, E-Trade or whatever it is, right? If you're not a high-frequency trader, the high-frequency traders see you. They call it the whale, right? They see you as the whale. And their whole thing, this is what uh, Michael Lewis talked about in Flash Boys or whatever. Um, the whole thing is they're going to do trades immediately before you uh, buy your thing. And they're going to get money off of your trade because they're going to force the price to go up and they're going to make the profit off of it. So that's just one example of how Wall Street sees you as the enemy and they have to get you to, you know, buy stupid things you don't want to, you know, spend money and 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 the same with the mortgages in 2008 with the housing bubble and and they had people signing, you know, they made the janitor into a vice president so they could approve mortgages more quickly and I mean the whole thing is just disgraceful. So anyway, uh, CNN money, three things Wall Street doesn't want you to know. Here's number two. A lot of what we're saying is just noise. There you go. Like the disguised meaning of hold, Wall Street also likes to throw in jargon and other concepts that make investing seem more difficult than it needs to be. Much of this esoteric terminology relates to technical analysis, a tool used for investing that divorces a stock's value from any facts about the company, looking strictly at the stock's chart instead. A recent article in Investor's Business Daily, for instance, describes Chipotle as having a double bottom base and Duncan Brands as etching a handle, explaining that a handle involves quote, a modest decline in a base. It needs to run at least five sessions, and ideally it should have a soft volume, end quote. Moving averages are also a popular subject of technical analysts. The problem with technical analysis, apart from the language sounding ridiculous, is that there's no real definition of it, and there's little proof that it actually works on a consistent basis. Finally, it clouds out judgments from fu fundamental analyst analysis, which is based on actual financial results and more rational analysis. So, you know, this notion that, yeah, you study the graph instead of looking at what the company does. It's like in Primer, the whole thing about uh, we're going to buy as many stocks as, uh, shares as we can of RGW. And then Aaron's like, what does this company do? He's like, what What do you mean? Do they make things? Or It doesn't matter. All that matters is the price goes up. That's a fallacy. Anytime you say, like, we're investing in this company, it doesn't matter what they do, that's false. It matters what they do. 
Anyway, um, yeah, and finally, oh, this is too funny. Ben Edelman, Harvard Business School professor, goes to war over $4 worth of Chinese food. And this is from Boston.com, so the Boston Herald. Uh, ben Edelman is an associate professor at Harvard Business School, where he teaches in the Negotiation, Organizations, and Markets Unit. Ran Duan manages the Baldwin Bar, located inside the Woburn location of Sichuan Garden, a Chinese restaurant founded by his parents. Last week, Edelman ordered what he thought was $53.35 worth of Chinese food from Sichuan Garden's Brookline Village location. Edelman soon came to the horrifying realization he had been overcharged by a total of $4! Oh, I don't have the dramatic sound. All right, well, dun-dun-dun! Uh, yeah, if you've ever wondered what happens when a Harvard Business School professor thinks a family-run Chinese restaurant screwed him out of $4, you're about to find out. And I need to open this up so I can read you some excerpts, because this is unbelievable. I mean, overcharged by $4. And the guy immediately says, okay, I'll pay you back. Dude gives him, you know, here's what it listed on the menu, and yada, yada, yada. And the guy writes back, I apologize about the confusing. Our website's prices has been out of date for some time. I will make sure to update it. If you like, I can email you an updated menu. And then the guy goes, um, we don't need to trouble you for an updated menu. Under Massachusetts law, it turns out to be a serious violation to advertise one price and charge a different price. I urge you to cease this practice immediately. If you don't know how to update your website, you could remove the website altogether until you are able to correct the error. Now, let me pull out of this for a second. This is an epidemic of people who are so certain. Uh, um, Kevin Spacey's character in The Ref is a perfect example of this. They know what the problem is, and they're convinced that like their perspective on it is the perspective that you need to hear, and, and they're going to tell you how to fix your problem. In the interim, I suggest that Sichuan Garden refund me three times the amount of the overcharge. The tripling reflects the approach provided under the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Statute, MGL93A, wherein consumers broadly receive triple damages for certain intentional violations. Intentional violations. It assumes this dude, like, running a Chinese restaurant, I'm going to make money out of people. <laughs> Please refund the $12 to my credit card, or you can mail a check for $12 to my home. And he gives his address. The guy goes, the dude writes back, Randwan says, Thank you for understanding this situation. We are a mom-and-pop restaurant, and we pride ourselves on hard work and authentic Sichuan cuisine. I will honor the website price and honor you the $3. Let me know if that works for you. Ben Edelman writes back, Your restaurant overcharged me $4, not $3. It strikes me that merely providing a refund to a single customer would be an exceptionally light sanction for the violation that has occurred. To wit, your restaurant overcharged all customers who viewed the website and placed a telephone order, the standard and typical way to order takeout. You did so knowingly, knowing that your website was out of date, out of date, and the customers would see it and rely on it. Oh, my mic is all over the place. Oh, my word. Um, you allowed the problem to continue in your own words for quite some time. You don't seem to recognize that this is a legal matter and calls for a more thoughtful and far-reaching resolution. Nor do you recognize the principle, well-established and applicable laws, that when a business intentionally overcharges a customer, the business should suffer a penalty larger than the amount of the overcharge. Punitive damage is here. A principle exactly intended to punish and deter violations. That's exactly what this is. This is Saul Rosenberg basically whining about punitive damages for no reason. 
this is a little mom and pop Chinese restaurant. The dude's like, I'm so sorry. And and then he says, like I said, I will honor the website's price, which is a $4 difference. You seek out $12, which is fine. I have no problem paying that penalty and giving you proper compensation. But that's not enough. So I just got off the phone with the website design company. They took off our, oh, no, wait, sorry, that's the dude from the restaurant again. They took off our menu to update. Blah, blah, blah. And he goes, are you represented by an attorney in connection with this matter? If so, as an attorney, I am bound by Massachusetts attorney ethics rules to communicate only with that attorney and not with you. I mean, what a scumbag. This is the this is the poison of modern American life. We're, me so litigious. It's pathetic. We're going to sue, every, sue everybody. It's just pathetic. I, it, God, it makes me hate. And again, this is a business school. What is he? Harvard Business School? What a jerk bag. I hate him. Har- associate professor at Harvard Business School. He should resign tomorrow. I clearly don't understand how money works in the real world, so I'm going to resign because I have no business teaching anyone about business if I can't handle you know, losing $4 to a mom-and-pop Chinese restaurant. Makes me sick. Speaking of education. Damn, Cookie! Ah! Got caught out again. Um, yeah, education. Education legacy could become albatross for Bush. This is from Politico. So, Jeb Bush, who I talked about at the start of the show, is an idiot. I hate him. And one of the reasons I hate him is because he, um, he's known as like an education leader. But that's not a good thing because he's a leader for the wrong reason. So, um, you know, it's like Scott Walker is known as, you know, hardcore governor because he took on the unions. It took on my union, took on teachers' unions, and as a result, our job as teachers is a lot harder now. So, I hate him. Um, so, yeah, um, the... Jeb Bush had this thing called the A-plus program. And it was a total disaster in Florida, and it served as a blueprint for the idiotic No Child Left Behind debacle that his idiot brother imposed on the nation. George W. Bush put out this No Child Left Behind, and we're still recovering from that stupid plan. And Obama came through with a stupid similar plan called Race to the Top, and it's all a bunch of bupkis. So here's what Politico says. For years, Bush's stature as a leading voice for education reform was seen as a tremendous asset to his national ambitions. But his opponents now have a good reason to hope that it could become an albatross, as many of the policies he is most closely associated with have come under fire from both conservative activists and moderate suburban parents. Those policies include include Bush's embrace of high-stakes testing, his push to grade schools and flunk them if they post poor test scores, and his close ties with corporations that seek profit in public education. So... Speaking about the A-plus plan, uh, I wrote a piece many years ago called A Profit Without Honors. And um, here's what I wrote like 10 years ago or something. In Florida, where Governor Jeb Bush has in his A-plus plan laid the groundwork for much of what his brother envisions and No Child Left Behind, the Florida Comprehensive Achievement Test, FCAT, has been tied to a system of evaluation wherein every school is given an actual letter grade based not on their performance on the FCAT overall, but the amount of improvement the school shows in its scores. Schools with high grades receive school recognition money, while low-scoring schools are sent teams of experts and assistant funds to deal with their problems. The objections of teachers in Florida to the system are similar to those of 
educators in other areas where the stakes of tests are extremely high. The state demands results, but provides the resources to attain them only after the school has shown the ability to earn them or not. Whether or not the meager assistance funds recently allocated by the Florida Department of Education to so-called failing schools will achieve lasting improvements remains to be seen. Now, 10 years later, I can tell you, we have remained to be, we have seen that it does not work. You send in a few million dollars and say, okay, we're going to get these test scores up. You will find a whole bunch of cooking the books and what we saw in D.C. and Atlanta, a whole bunch of cheating in Shanghai, let's not forget that, Pisa. And as a result, numbers go up, and I don't trust the numbers. I don't trust education numbers, period, to be honest with you. When it comes to education numbers, I'm just skeptical of the whole thing. I want to have a conversation with the student and, you know, have some one-on-one -on -one time with them before I figure out how they're doing, right? Because I've had students who have really low test scores, but they're really driven to learn and they're working really hard and that's what's important. And I've had students who have really high test scores and they're like, okay, well, I just want to be rich. And that's what matters because they don't have any lust for learning. They don't have any thirst for knowledge. They don't have any drive. It's pathetic. So, you know, num and, and, and there's cooking the books everywhere and all these numbers. There, there are, there, there's so many ways to finesse the numbers. It makes me sick. So the point is that Jeb Bush, could, it probably isn't going to be talking a lot about his education record. And, you know, there's this whole thing with Common Core. It's so complicated now because once upon a time, Common Core, you know, No Child Left Behind said we need similar standards across the country. And the Common Core kind of grew out of that movement of, well, you know, Alabama has low expectations for its students. So, you know, we need the expectations in Texas and, you know, New York to be the same. So we'll have one set of standards, the Common Core standards. Um... And, and that was really popular for a while, but then a bunch of conservative people said, well, this is robbing local school districts of their autonomy, and it's true, it is, and suddenly they're rebelling against it. So we have this really interesting thing going on, even on the right, of people saying, well, we want this for education, and other people saying, well, we want this other thing. And in, in Wisconsin, Scott Walker's like, I'm going to replace Common Core with my own standards. And like, so we'll have the Common Walker standards or whatever. We just got done transitioning out of the Wisconsin standards to the Common Core, and now they're going to get rid of the Common Core and go to some new Wisconsin standards. It's all wine and new bottles. We see, we see this like every five to ten years in education. And I called this when I first started teaching. I was like, this sounds like a lot like the stuff that we just got done getting rid of. And it happens over and over again. Every school I've ever taught, we always do this. And every school district and every state around around the country, and probably every country or in the world, has this same cycle of, we're going to come up with this new way of teaching. It's going to solve the problem. It's going to help the ki struggling kids. And blah, 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 blah. You know what helps struggling kids? One-on-one -on -one time, personal attention, and building relationships with teachers. You know how you don't get any of those things? Big classes, okay? And yeah, you have crappy teachers who even in reasonable sized classrooms still don't really create relationships with students and still don't give any one-on-one -on -one time and still don't, you know, help the kids do better. And, you know, yeah. So, but, 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 but the real problem is that, you know, you have a bell curve of teachers. Some are crap. Some are great. Some, most of them are, you know, kind of in the middle. And the, the average teacher will do a lot better with a smaller class because they have more time for one-on-one -on -one time and they have fewer papers to grade, so they're less stressed and they're less crazy. And blah, 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 blah. I would like to thank John Mouse for sending me this awesome spoken word thing called Why I Hate School But Love Education. And this is guy, by a guy named uh, Sulibrizi. Uh, I, I don't know what his name is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, guy this dude anyway john mouse sent me this thing yes yeah, sula breaks um and so yeah here take a listen so you want 
to get a degree. Why? Let me tell you what society will tell you. It increases your chances of getting a job, provides you with an opportunity to be successful. Your life will be a lot less stressful. Education is the key. Now let me tell you what your parents will tell you. Make me proud. It increases your chances of getting a job, provides you with an opportunity to be successful. Your life will be a lot less stressful. Education is the key. Now let's look at the statistics. Steve Jobs, net worth, 7 billion, RIP. Richard Branson, net worth, 4.2 billion. Oprah Winfrey, net worth, 2.7 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, Henry Ford, Steven Spielberg, Bill Gates. Now here comes the coup de grace. Looking at these individuals, what's your conclusion? Neither of them in being successful ever graduated from a higher learning institution. Now, I will say, interrupting, sorry, excuse me, Sula Breaks, or Sula Breezy, whatever your name is. Um, those, those people are outliers. The, the, the stand, if you look at statistics about earning potential, having a college degree generally earns you more than not having a college degree. Now, that said, I agree with Ted Rawl when he says that, you know, in some ways, college education is for suckers because the, the amount of debt you take on, especially today... It doesn't make it economically viable, and because you're in debt for the rest of your life, you can't change jobs. You don't have the freedom to find a job that fulfills you, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a question of debt and how we pay for college, not whether college is a good idea. Now some of you protest like, you know, money is only the medium by which one measures worldly success. And some of you even have the nerve to say, I don't do it for the money. So what are you studying for? To work for a charity? Need more clarity? Let's look at the statistics. Jesus, Muhammad peace be upon him, Socrates, Malcolm X, Mother Teresa, Spielberg, Shakespeare, Beethoven, Jesse Owens, Muhammad Ali, Sean Carter, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, Michael Joseph Jackson. Okay, I'm sorry. You cannot put Jay-Z in the same list. I mean, come on. Were either of these people unsuccessful or uneducated? All I'm saying is that if there was a family tree, Hard work and education would be related, but school would probably be a distant cousin. As if education is the key, then school is the lock. Because it rarely ever develops your mind to the point where it can perceive red as green and continue to go when someone else said stop. Because as long as you follow the rules and pass the exams, you're cool. But are you aware that examiners have a checklist? And if your answer is something outside of the box, the automatic response is across. Now, okay, here's the part where I agree 100% because he's getting into the distinction between knowledge and learning and the test results and the letters and the grades because this is the same split that I talk about in my classroom between money and truth. And then they claim that school expands your horizons and your visions. Well, tell that to Malcolm X who dropped out of school and is well-renowned for what he learned in a prison. Proverbs 17, 16. It does a fool no good to spend money on education. Why? Because he has no common sense. George Bush. Need I say more? So, yeah. Um, and he has another one called the Americant Dream. Um, and John Mouse wanted my thoughts on that. Um, I agree with a lot of what he's saying, you know. And I, I, I you know, there's, there's a certain perspective of 
education being different from school, which I certainly agree with. And, and that's an important split. And I've had, you know, I had friends who didn't go to college and they did quite well. And they're, you know, some of the people I know who love learning the most. But I also feel like in my classroom, I work really hard to, you know, help people pursue real education. And the most bizarre situation for me is when I'm trying to get the kid to pursue real education and he or she just wants to go after the points or the money or whatever it is. So that's a really weird position for me to be in because usually it's the other way, right? And when I have students who are like, yeah, learning for its own sake, often that itself is a smokescreen for, I don't feel like doing this work. And that really bugs me because then they're using the mantle of, I want things to change. I want to, you know, go my own path. And then I'm like, okay, I'll give them two weeks in my creative writing two class, be like, and choose an independent project, go nuts. And I have students who do the vast majority, in fact, do, but I always have some, I always have some who just goof off and play with their phones for two weeks. And then when it's time to turn something in, they're like, I wrote two poems. And that's the end of it. And I'm like, really? Come on, dude, you're, you're, you're using this supposed perspective that you have as an excuse for you know, not wanting to do your work. So whatever. Thank you, John Mouse. Uh, cool videos. And I encourage people to check them out. I will link to both of them. And now it's time for some killer robots. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. A precise U.S. drone war? Report says 28 unidentified victims killed for every one target. Oh, my goodness. This is in Democracy Now!, and it's a really important article. Uh, you should watch it. Um, a news report... Uh, a new report finds U.S. drone strikes kill 28 unidentified people for every intended target. While the Obama administration has claimed its drone strikes are precise, the group Reprieve found that strikes targeting 41 people in Yemen and Pakistan have killed more than 1,000 other unnamed people. In its attempts to kill al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri alone, the CIA killed 76 children and 29 adults. Al-Zawahiri remains alive. We are joined by Jennifer Gibson, staff attorney at Reprieve and author of the new report, You Never Die Twice, Multiple Kills in the U.S. Drone Program. So you should totally check it out and uh, learn all about that. Meanwhile, spectrum.ieee.org, I don't even know what this is, but some website, um, there's a company called Cyberdyne, uh, a robotic spinoff of the University of Tuscaloosa. Tusukuba in Japan first unveiled its HAL exoskeleton nearly a decade ago. Over the years, the company has improved its technology, expanded its product line, and carried out a steady commercialization program. It currently offers the HAL suit in Japan and Europe and is planning to enter the U.S. market next year. Now, end quote. Okay, here's the thing. Look, I know they're trying to capitalize on the way that Hollywood has gotten us used to certain names and they, hey, people will recognize this name but they're the wrong names Hal is a killer robot that wanted to murder humans okay Cyberdyne is the company that makes the Terminator robots and St Skynet that destroys all humanity you should not call your company something that destroys humanity even if it's just as a joke or to capitalize on a pop culture reference it's pathetic don't do that okay Hal stands for hybrid assistive limb and despite of its company's name, Sankai insists that its technology will be used only for peaceful purposes. <laughs> you know what? That's cute and ironic, and I hate that. Stop it. Um, Philly.com. Tablets and e-readers may disrupt your sleep. 
the tab the light emitted by a tablet like an iPad can disrupt sleep if the device is used in the hours before bedtime according to a new Harvard study now this obviously has no correlation or connection to video games so don't try to make that link Duchess I don't want to hear it hi People who read before bed using an iPad or similar e-reader device feel, felt less sleepy and took longer to fall asleep than when they read a regular printed book, researchers found. The morning after reading an e-book, people found it harder to wake up and become fully alert than after reading a regular book, even though they got the same amount of sleep. The bright light from these devices appears to suppress melatonin, a sleep-promoting hormone that normally increases during the evening and reaches its highest levels as you sleep, said lead researcher Anne-Marie Chang. She's an associate neuroscientist in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Harvard's Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. <laughs> Nerd. In the study, 12 young adults read for about four hours before bedtime on five consecutive evenings in a very dimly lit room at the hospital. Half read e-books and the rest read printed books. After that, they spent another five evenings reading at the hospital, only they traded their e-books for printed books and vice versa. Participants reading an e-book took longer, about 10 minutes longer, to fall asleep than when they read a printed book. They rated themselves as feeling less sleepy. When they did nod off, they spent less time in REM sleep, the phase of sleep associated with dreaming and deep restorative sleep the researchers observed. Now, I'm joking. I have no doubt that my obsessive, fanatical addiction to video games has something to do with my bad sleep cycle. And, um, yeah. That's all I'm going to say about that. And finally, what do you get Pope Francis for his birthday? 1,760 pounds of chicken meat. Woo! Pope Francis got a cake, cards, and a tango demonstration for his 78th birthday Wednesday, and 800 kilograms, 1,760 pounds, of chicken meat for the poor. Really? You're going to give it to the poor? Come on, Francis, can't you ever do anything for yourself? The Vatican said Wednesday that the meat provided by a Spanish producer would be distributed to soup kitchens. Francis also greeted eight homeless people bearing sunflowers during his Wednesday general audience held under bright sunny skies in St. Peter's Square. Oh my God, people, we are going to finish before an hour is up. Uh, Let's talk about some tits. Uh, ah. uh, Um, one of my favorite albums uh, of Christmas music, my favorite, al this is no competition, my favorite album of Christmas music is Christmas Rap, and uh, it has the legendary um, uh, Christmas in Hollis, as Run DMC performed it, it has uh, Sweet Teas, Let the Jingle Bells Rock, which is what I played on the Veteran Gamers recently, and I'm going to play you another track from this Christmas rap album, and i got to figure out which one it's going to be, so give me a second. Edit. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to play Dana Dane. Dana Dane was this, I don't know where he was from or anything about him, but he had this very highfalutin way of rhyming, and he, he always talked like this. So I'm gonna, he had this Christmas song called Dana Dane is Coming to Town, so I'll play you a little bit of that. That's right, party people, Dana Dane is back. Herbie's behind the board of the 24 track machine. Making sure the bees come out clean as I tell you this tale of a Christmas theme. It all began in the far off land. Do you know the drummer boy? Well, I'm the rapper man. I wandered and wandered with no main call. Drawn to a campsite by some street for. Now in this camp lived three wise men. They said, hey, Dana where have you been? been? They said that they had been expecting me. Told me to kick off my sandals and relax my feet. We started to talk. A lot of time was spent telling how MCs wouldn't be content till the Christmas spirit was gone and demolished. And I was the only one who could abolish their plan. So I took a stand. 
said I must journey across the land. I said, listen, my friend, I'll be glad to go. But the sand out there is worse than snow. The first wise man said, yes, that's true. To protect my feet, gave me ballet shoes. The second wise man said, yes, yes you're right. And gave me a candle to shave my eyes. The third wise man, leaning on a cane, said, take this mic, rapper Dana Dane. He said that the mic would help my words of Christmas cheer be clearly heard. And so on. So yeah, Dana Dane. Uh, I was really into him for a while. He's got a good flow. He he's kind of kind of a weird delivery, but whatever. Let's talk about the quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Stop repenting, cause the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in fear. Pay attention. You gotta listen to hear. William E. Vaughn was an American columnist and author. He was born in 1915, died in 1977. And this quote is the one I always think of on New Year's Eve because we didn't make it last night. Uh, William E. Vaughn said, quote, Youth is when you're allowed to stay up late on New Year's Eve. Middle age is when you're forced to. <laughs> All right, that's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My main website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is at fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff that I've made. Shout-outs this week to you for listening. A special shout-out to anybody who's listening for the first time this week. What? what? John Mouse for the stories in the video. Uh, I, Pete, for the tweets. And the Duchess for being awesome. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. You can reach me at esp at fbesp.org, or you can tweet me at Duke Scath. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Happy New Year, everybody! Thank you, Duchess.